I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So what you need to know about David Rubin Pickdokin's sculptures is that they are his way of telling stories. Now, they might be stories he's learned from talking to Inuit elders or stories he's learned from books about Inuit folklore. But, and this is important and as you're about to hear, David also sculpts to make sense of his own story. So David's originally from Northwest Territories. He's a residential school survivor. Um, he, he puts it really beautifully. He, he says he has an education in forgetting. And art, like his sculpture, was a way for him to take this anger that he found himself just completely consumed by and channel it into something more productive. And he says at one point he's watched the anger just disappear when he's making his work. Now, David won the Governor General's Award in Visual and Media Arts last year. I got the chance to speak to him earlier this year about his work and his decades-long career in sculpture. It was right around the time he had an exhibition of his sculptures at the Art Gallery of Ontario called Radical Remembrance. Listen, just a warning, in our conversation, David talks about some of his experiences in residential school as a kid and the ways those traumatic experiences still live with him. I'm very grateful to have had this time with David, and i I got to be honest with you, I couldn't stop thinking about this conversation for days after we talked. Over the weekend, we marked the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, so we thought it was fitting to bring this one back. Here's David Rubin Pictokin telling me how a hitchhiking trip with his brother back in 72 led him to carving and how that changed the course of his life. My beginnings were very simple. I I met my brother uh, in Calgary uh, in 1972. And uh, he wanted to go to Vancouver, so we hitchhiked across the mountain ranges. We walked most of it, I recall. I got very sick. But uh, we still walked, and we finally got a ride into, got got really close to Vancouver, and uh, we he set up shop for me. He set up his own shop so that uh, he can introduce me to stone carving. I didn't have a clue what that was, and so I just watched him and watched what he was doing with the stone, the cutting, the carving, the sanding. I started picking up uh, the stone chips that he was cutting off, and I was fascinated by this material. It was very silky feel. It had a silky feel, and uh, mysteriously, I felt like, geez, I'm touching magic. It felt like I was touching magic. It felt like you were touching magic. Yeah. And uh, I asked him... uh, he showed me the different processes of working it, and uh, I started I started carving the stone, and uh, I was fascinated by it right from the very beginning. It took the better part of uh, four years to learn how to stone carve, but after about four years, like it started making sense to me. 
What What was the first piece you were happy with? What was the first piece you were, you said, this is, this is, this is something now? Well, my first, let's go back to this. My first paycheck was $56. There was, uh, I carved uh, maybe four flat pieces of material. I did relief of uh, Arctic animals on the, on these pendant sized stones. So that uh, it took me to another another realm of stone carving. I can carve it, and suddenly I can start selling it too. So, I mean, David, it goes without saying, right? You go from um, doing pendants, like you mentioned, to eventually like telling stories through your art, like telling telling bigger stories through your art. When, when what were the stories you wanted to tell through your art? In, uh, but in 1974, which is about two years after I started stone carving, I I met a collector, uh, a Dr. Alan Goner. He was kind enough to introduce himself, and and uh, he told me about. Uh, he asked me asked me if I could collect stories from my travels back to the Arctic, and he said from these stories. You develop the mythology of your people. And so I, I, I took that and realized that I, I, I could collect the stories and uh, figure out how these mythologies, how I can interpret them in stone carving. It was uh, very difficult at first, but it all started to make sense. And uh, I could... When the story is told, I could see images. I could see the visual images of uh, the mythological figures and legend, and I could duplicate them into a stone carving object. That's how. Uh, that's how I, I I developed to understand the mythology of our of my Inuit people. It, it, it took a long time to get together, but. I started to understand the nature of of how these stories could, could tell more stories and also make me understand uh, more about my Inuit background because I, I I was still an Eskimo then and uh, being an Eskimo I could carve and I, I was able to to sell my work as an Eskimo. How do you mean? Well, an Eskimo is always an Eskimo, but today is a different story. Uh, we're we're uh, they're more uh, compassionate to us. We're we're now called Inuit people. But uh, for myself, like once an Eskimo, always an Eskimo. Initially, I'd lost it all. I was a no man. I was in no man's land. I I, I, got, I received an education in forgetting who I was. I I couldn't speak my own language, but I recall that I spoke it fluently when I was a child. But I went to residential school and they taught taught, taught me how to how to, a new language, English, yeah, Francais, and they. I was forced to forget what I, what I, what I was initially Inuit Eskimo. 
You, you called it an education in forgetting just then. Yes, I did. I called it an education in forgetting who I was, what I believed in, what I spoke. And uh, even at, at a point, I was, I was didn't know uh, who my parents were. And uh, I couldn't do nothing about it. I, I was just clueless. Do you remember being taken to the school? Do you remember that day? Yes, I, I do. I, I, I was just a, just a young child like the other children in my village. We don't know exactly what year it was, but we're just children running around in the snow. I know it was cold, and uh, mysteriously, suddenly we were told to just jump into the plane. We didn't know what a plane was. No one's ever ridden a plane before, but they just stuffed us into an airplane, and all this without the knowledge of our of my parents, of our parents, and we all ended up in uh, in the place called the Clavic in the Northwest Territories. I still remember the sound of the the airplane, the drone. They call it the drone. The droning of the engines and didn't have a clue where we were going. It's basically being abducted. Uh, it was difficult uh, the initial first days. We didn't have a clue where we were, but I recall wearing uh, pajamas and and uh, being uh, thrown into a closet. This is where you're sleeping tonight, David. I, I was kind of paranoid, locked up in a little closet. I'd say you were by, you were so young, you know? Yeah, yeah, it, uh, I'm still scared of the dark at this, at my age now. I sleep with lights on all of the, the habit that I picked up. My wife is not quite used to it yet, but that, that's how initially I've, uh, I felt safer with lights on. That was the initial days of uh, my residential school experiences. Uh, I was went through the residential school system for 17 years, but I did. Uh, I managed to learn English, and uh, but not the français. I couldn't. I, yeah. I couldn't understand it and. I became very, I became very resentful of the language and the people, and but at least with the English, I, uh, I was able to get by. But the experience itself was uh, very difficult to be. Uh, every day was different. Every day the torture, the the the, the beatings were were steady, but. It, it got to the point where I uh, I grew old enough. I was 14, 15 years old, and and I could defend myself finally against the nuns and the people that used to beat us. They wouldn't touch me then. You could fight back. Yeah. But uh, what the nuns did was uh, unforgivable. But they said to me, when I, I 
when I started to expose my anger, and they realized that this, I, I finally got David really angry here. They told me that I looked like a, looked like a demon. Like they told me that I, I'm a killer of people and killer of anything. And that really affected my thinking. Jesus, I've never done that. So. Yeah, you were a child, and they were telling you that you were that you were a killer. They were you were a child, and they were telling you this thing. Yeah, but I still had a lot of anger, and uh, I've uh, over the years, I've uh, even to this date, I've what I've done with that anger is I've I've transformed that anger into creative efforts, creative endeavors. That's how I how that's what became of that. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decoder Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. Tell me more about channeling anger into, into art, into, into creative endeavors. Well, I, uh, when I work... I work alone basically unless I have I need some help with heavy material to move things around. But other than that, I'm all alone by myself with my thoughts and uh, working with material images that speak to me. I have a special dialogue with materials that I work with, especially multiple images or any image that that comes out of the stone. It, it basically encompasses all that, basically the knowledge that I lost since my childhood, knowledge about the Inuit people. And with the dialogue with the material, it, I can learn more, more from stone carving than I can from books that I read. What do you mean by you're in dialogue with the materials? I always thought that everybody had that dialogue with the raw material. But with me, it's uh, I, I have images that I create, and they speak to me, and they give me direction. And my mind uh, sees things differently. I start to understand what the what these images are trying to tell me, and uh, which way it should be, or which way it should not be, and it's just a unique dialogue with the material. How does that help with the anger? It disappears. Anger disappears. And uh, I, I can... I, I, I don't have to live with it or sleep with the anger. I know how to make it disappear. And I'm a much better person for that. That's a pretty powerful 
thing. You know, like that's a pretty, especially since you came to carving so late and you said your brother introduced you to it and you were making pendants, to know that when you started working with this material, one, it was it was speaking to you, like you were able to, in dialogue, and was able to give you the directions of the art you needed to make, and also that it was helping with the anger that you had held, rightfully so, your life. That's pretty, that's pretty powerful, you know? Hmm. It is, it sure is. But uh, it's just a recollection of how my creative endeavors uh, had taken me to. After 10 years of stone carving, I had more control over the material. What happened was the material used to have control over me, like the soapstone, alabaster, any material that I used, they had control over me and uh, until I refer reversed that control, I could use the tools, tools of my trade. And uh, with the right tools, I can get control over the raw material and the, the materials started to respect me as an artist also. And now I can explore different avenues of sculpting. Those those avenues you're talking about are, are amazing because you, I heard you say something about, um, I was reading an interview with you when I was coming in here and you said something like, I am just the translator. Uh, something to that effect. I, I I translate these stories, the images, so that people can understand it a little better. It's just not a big blob of stone. But when it has detail, it it can tell you what it is and and uh, maybe speak to you too. What does that mean to you to be able to tell? These stories, the stories of uh, of the Inuit. Well, what's really important is that uh, I'm learning more about my Inuit past. I'm not just an Eskimo anymore. I'm a legitimate Inuit now. And even though I can't speak the language, uh, the language is still dormant in my system, in my mind. I was told that it's you know, my language is still in my. It's still in my lodged in my DNA because I because every every now and then I find myself speaking my own language and something is coming up somewhere. Maybe my past is revealing itself. The language is slowly revealing itself to me. I understand what you mean, David. Like you, the horrors of the residential schools rob that from you, right? It robs it from you, takes it from you. And now through your art, through the blobs of stone, as you mentioned, through the, the stories you're able to tell through it, you're able to get in touch with the thing that you lost. I'm getting in touch with my past and basically who I am. I even lost my identity. So it's uh, trying to, it's a, it's a step to finding my own identity as a, as a person. Most important thing is I'm able to tell stories through my artwork and people are starting to understand. I, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time to talk to me today and, and telling me your stories. And, and it was lovely to get the, a chance to talk to you and get a chance to meet you. Yes, uh, likewise. I really enjoyed this session and uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see you again someday, talk again. 
That was David Rubin Piktokun, the Governor General award-winning sculptor. If you want to see some of his art, and I recommend that you do, we have posted some of his images of his sculptures on our Instagram page at CBCQ. The National Residential School Crisis Line is 1-866-925-4419. It's available 24 hours a day. That's 1-866-925-4419. All right, that's it for this episode of Q. The other episode we put up today is my conversation with the artist and uh, filmmaker and actor Jennifer Pademski. She talks about her show Little Bird, which is really incredible. But um, the part of the conversation that's really sticking out for me is the story where she talks about like being this young actor. She's in Anishinaabe and she goes to L.A. to audition for these you know big agents. And um, they're really disrespectful. They talk on the phone while she's auditioning. They're, they make comments about her ethnicity. They say things like, we just don't know what to do with you. And she takes that feedback, we'll call it feedback, and turns it into um, a, a lifetime of making sure people never feel that way, of making sure that people feel like their stories are being told authentically. I love the way she told that story. If nothing else, go check out the interview just for that. It's the other uh, conversation on this podcast for you, uh, wherever you got this one. If someone, uh, I don't know, texted you this podcast, uh, go to Q with Tom Power, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.